0: We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same.
1: Year, I feel like there are two big subjects that we have been mentioning and not addressing. So let's just get the first big one out of the way. Let's talk about the sexism. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell, rock. Jingle bell swing and jingle bells ring. Snow
0: C.S. Lewis hates women.
1: C.S. Lewis certainly has strong opinions on women, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, they're interesting. So there's obviously that quote with. Father Christmas when he gives the bow to Susan and the dagger to Lucy and very clearly emphasizes that as these are for emergency scenarios only, they as women should not fight. And and Lucy even is like, why not? I think I, I could fight. And he's like, nope, nope, you're a woman. You cannot. Don't do it. Bad. Uh,
0: quick question. Does Susan ever use the bow in the book? I can't remember.
1: I can't remember either. So doesn't she try and shoot the wolf and she fails? I don't remember. I just read this book and I don't remember. I'm so sorry.
0: <laughs> that, that's telling that we can't remember because it seems like the, the setup is there and there is no payoff because we're told that like it will never miss, only use it in emergency. So we're thinking, oh, there's going to be an emergency where she's going to have to shoot something. There isn't any moment like that. Or certainly if there is, it's far from memorable. So, it really... S- Susan is probably the least developed character of the four siblings. And I think that's telling for me that, like, she's given this gift, told its explicit purpose, and does nothing with it. And it's like, one, that's just bad writing. It's a Chekhov's gun, and C.S. Lewis fell flat on his face there. But also, it just... Really revealing of what value he puts into the female characters in his stories. Like Lucy has more to do, but that's just a function of Lucy dis- discovers Narnia first, and she's the one that sort of introduces it to everybody else.
1: Well, I think it's very much <laughs> oh, I can't believe I'm going to say this about a kids' book, but the uh, virgin whore split, right? So women are either uh, the Virgin Mary and therefore pure embodiments of good moral centers, or they're Eve, like the woman that brought the downfall of all mankind, or they're like Lilith, that sort of same thing. So like,
0: or Mary Magdalene.
1: Well, actually, I was I was thinking about um we talked a little bit about Aslan's death scene, but we haven't fully gone into the Christianness of that. But the fact that it is Susan and Lucy who witness it and take care of him afterwards, you would know this better than I would. Um, but I I believe don't both uh, the Virgin Mary and Mary Magdalene play a pretty big part in the post-cross time or him on the cross?
0: Right. So it's um, I think interpretations differ about the, the identities of the women present at jesus's crucifixion sometimes it's married the mom sometimes it's and it, it is max the women who discover that jesus has risen from the grave that being the case in the gospels is that it offers the story more <sighs> legitimately <city. sighs> possibly believe women back in the day because they're it's hysterical. like a counterintuitive way where it actually proves so i a don't story. know if, if C.S. Lewis was trying to piggyback. It also could just be fitting that, like, he needed characters who would act passively in that situation. Who else but the women to act as passive observers of what's happening?
1: Well, and it gets them out of the battle, too. Um,
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But yeah, I, I think it's very significant that they're the ones that are there and get to see that. I think there's a lot that just it, it, they could literally just be carried over. Like he's like replacing the Marys with uh, Susan and Lucy. And obviously, there's a lot else that is just a direct parallel of what happened to Jesus. One of the things I did know is like a lot of scholars have been like, ah, but like, what does it mean that, you know, Jesus died for all of mankind to redeem all of mankind? And Like, literally, Aslan dies for Edmund. He dies to save one person. And, you know, that's kind of where the whole thing comes in, that it's more, this is more typology than it is an exact allegory. This is more, like, he is a Jesus-esque figure than he is exactly Jesus. And I did think, I mean, I honestly think it's kind of cool that he dies just to save one kid. Obviously, uh, um, don't get mad at me, but, like, the christian story is very powerful that he dies to save everyone
0: don't get mad at you as as she says christianity is baloney okay oh
1: well, it's very it's very powerful <laughs> that jesus dies to save everyone oh, sure. but i i think there there was something very powerful about like it didn't need to be everyone it just needed to be one person like i i think that adds to the power of the entire scene and this
0: I agree with that. I think it's it's more significant in that there is the the sacrifice is bigger because it's like if you're going to save all of humanity by dying, well of course you're going to make that choice. If you're going to die to save Edmund's life, that little like <laughs> that that says something
1: even if you know you're coming back.
0: And I will say the logic explained afterward by Aslan, it feels very ad hoc of like yeah, if if somebody gives their life in this very specific scenario, <laughs> you know what you didn't know is that like, oh yeah, there's deep magic, but there's even deeper magic. I know, and it's and it's so silly. It's like, oh well, that's extremely convenient to me. It just like eh, that. It doesn't it doesn't make sense. And in in this scenario of a fairy tale, that's okay. It doesn't have to make sense. It's just like. Hey, Aslan's back, and he's cool, and he's jumping around. He's He can jump, like, 80 <laughs> feet in the air now, and he's, like, super powerful. I guess he was always super powerful, but he wasn't displaying it as much as before. Yeah,
1: he's just having a romp.
0: Jumping around with the kids. Meanwhile, hundreds of people over there are dying as he's jumping around. But well, <sighs> Ignore that. Uh, they're having fun, and so it's like, okay, it's fun, it's fine. And, and it's like, to me, the parallel to Jesus just makes it weaker. It takes me out of it. And it's it's less impactful because it's like, oh, obviously he's trying to connect it to that. And obviously it's it sort of signifies this and that. Rather than just being a meaningful character beat for Aslan to sacrifice himself for this kid who, up to this point in the narrative, doesn't deserve it. And it just... For me, it takes away from that because this sort of meta narrative that's happening, regardless if C.S. Lewis intended that or not, it's just distracting from what's happening on
1: the page. This is part of why I'm pumped that we're reading The Magician's Nephew next, because I think they try and explain the whole like deep magic and deeper magic thing in that, if I remember correctly. And I'm pretty sure it continues to like not make sense and just be kind of a <laughs> weak excuse for the Jesus, Jesus-esque story to happen. So, yeah, I mean, I agree that, I mean, I I like Aslan coming back. I think it's good. But if he had been able to justify it more and better so that it doesn't just seem like he's doing this because it's Jesus, I do think it, it would have been stronger. Yeah,
0: that's that's something I was thinking about, because so many of my issues with the narrative are these references that he makes not and not just to the bible like the santa claus thing bugs me so much and i think it's a hindrance how much he relies on certain narratives that he's obviously very familiar with whether it's the bible story or the christmas story or whatever the case might be and like they take away from the narrative they're distracting i know he claims that Like the influence, the Christian influences came in after he composed that sort of the structure of the story. But to me, they just weaken the narrative because it it feels like forced, like he's forcing these references to his beliefs or things he's familiar with in a way that, like, if you look at again, sorry, Lord of the Rings, where Tolkien takes influences from just dozens of different things but he never lets any one of those sources dominate the story in the way that Christianity dominates the Chronicles of Narnia. And so he's telling a different story. The influences are a lot more subtle and for that reason, a lot less distracting. And so you can enjoy the story for what it is as a story and then come back later and sort of pick out these like oh that's a reference to this or oh that sort of parallels this and and sort of draw deeper meanings from that this is kind of like the the poems for me where it's just like a one-to-one thing it's like oh aslan is jesus full stop and to me that's not interesting it doesn't allow for any deeper reading of or not necessarily deeper but like varied reading like, everyone who reads The Chronicles of Narnia is going to see Aslan as the same type of character. Like, we can talk about Aslan, but it's, it's ultimately going to come to the same interpretation. And I think that just, as a whole, weakens it for me. And I think that's a big reason why I didn't like it as a kid, because it's just like, this is boring to me. I already know who Jesus is. I don't need Jesus in a lion form to understand him.
1: Yeah, don't need him to understand him, but like, also the idea of Lion Jesus is pretty awesome. <laughs> I would love if Jesus was a lion.
0: You do have a thing for lions, though. So, like, <laughs> uh,
1: Casey is referencing the fact that my favorite movie of all time is The Lion King, which is a perfect movie, and uh, I will hear nothing bad about it. Not the new one, the original animated version. The new one I refuse to see, and I've heard it's not good and they shouldn't have done it.
0: And of course, as we all know, The Lion King is based off of Hamlet.
1: Oh my god. You you can't take me on this tangent. You can't. I got into grad school based off an essay about how they are not the same thing.
0: Now we're talking about grad school. Okay. I didn't realize it's okay to talk about that now. (laughs) Well, you kept it into
1: the first episode, so I guess now all parts are on the table. Anyhow, going back, I kind of tried to keep track this time of his influences coming in, and I do think it's, interesting like you brought up it's hard to have an alternate interpretation which is so crazy because he brings in so many different strands of mythology and other things um and that will increase as the books go on i know for sure um he makes a lot of obviously a lot of the creatures are references to greek and roman mythology he also mentions bacchus yes like that's that's a
0: i hated that god like
1: i i don't i don't know what to do with that so like Actually, sorry, that's the Roman version of the god. My bad, Bacchus is Roman.
0: Yeah, how dare you.
1: And also, even just um, the White Witch being half-giant, I was like, huh, that's kind of like a call to Norse mythology. And I believe Loki is half-giant, yes. in fact. So, like, is that kind of aligning her with Loki? That's a thing. Um, There are probably other things that I, I didn't actually take notes on, but, like, And and I did read an article that talked a little bit about how C.S. Lewis was very influenced by the fact that medieval and Renaissance literature do just kind of throw a whole bunch of mythology in and it doesn't quite make sense. There's a lot of times, especially, I mean, I know this part better, so like Renaissance plays will have Christianity and then have characters talking about Jove, who is a Roman god. Do they actually, are they actually, you know mean that there's a job out there or is this some sort of way to express things um there's been a lot written about that so it does seem to me like he's very much this (laughs) a mythology mix-up is what i've been calling that it's it's part (laughs) of the legacy he's drawing from medieval and Renaissance literature but i i agree with you i don't think it 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 doesn't work from a modern perspective it gets very like confusing (laughs) Um, and then the Christianity so dominates it that you're like, why, why is Bacchus here? What is he doing? And then it it raises questions, right? Like if you're going to invoke that mythology, but not other parts of it. Like one of the articles was like, yeah, it's confusing then because if you're going to have a fawn and you're deliberately calling to Roman mythology, so it's not just like the creature of a fawn, but you're like referencing other Roman mythology. Um, Fawns were like, oftentimes like sexual predators so like (laughs) yeah this this guy was like yeah it's kind of weird because like if you're gonna reference that then like lucy's encounter is not at all what you would have gotten out of roman mythology right so it's this kind of strange yeah i had a lot of fun with chronicles of narnia scholarly articles it was a time They're doing some fun stuff out there, and I want to just shout out to the people doing the Lord's work.
0: Indeed. And I think that's a good point about, like, the fawn or whatever. It's like, what do you take away from those references? It's very clear what you're supposed to take away from Aslan dying and coming back to life. It's very, very clear. What are you supposed to take away from Bacchus making a random cameo? Or from the minotaurs and the unicorns and everything else that gets mentioned, even from The Witch as the Snow Queen, it's like, what's the sort of greater significance of that? And it just feels like there is none, which gets back to the my feeling that the narrative is just so sloppy, where things are just thrown in there without much thought to why they're in there. And to me, maybe that's just like... C.S. Lewis's weakness as a writer, where he he's not great at coming up with narratives. I mean, I haven't read. Well, Go ahead. Sorry,
1: I just want to like interject quickly because I think I want to make a distinction between. I think the actual narrative story is decent. I mean, it's tropey, but like that's fine. What do you think, Larry? Eh. What do you mean, eh? Eh. But I think the fact he doesn't seem to feel the need, he just kind of takes references and puts them in and doesn't try and and build something independent. And he just kind of thinks those things can stand on their own. Um, so, like, the idea of, like, four kids coming into a magical land and one of them getting turned to the side of evil and, like, that whole thing could, like, be turned into a very interesting story. But he just kind of then throws stock characters characters from other mythology or references to other things and puts them in there and then doesn't try and build it as an independent thing. So, yeah, I, w- I just wanted to distinguish between the actual like literal plot points and how he constructs them, if that makes sense.
0: Yes, that that makes sense. And I think I mean, I don't know. And like I we can endlessly speculate about what his intentions were, I just think that the end result is that we get this scattershot world that has some influences pulled directly from Earth that are just plopped into Narnia without explanation. And it's it's just, at, at the very best, it's just distracting for me. I don't take anything away from Bacchus appearing. I don't take anything away from all the mystical creatures that are in it. And I'm curious because I know that for... A lot of these books, he wrote them very, very quickly. I don't know, there's no exact timeline, I think, for how long it took him to write The Lion, the Witch, and the, Ro- and the Wardrobe, but, you know, for, like, uh, The Voyage of the Don Treader, apparently that took him two months to write. And, like, I'm sure there's some revision there and whatever, but, like, he had very quick turnaround on a lot of these books. And I, and I wonder if that's part of it, where he just kind of threw it in, didn't really care about it, didn't really think about it. Because why would he? First of all, it's a children's book. Children are not going to be picking up on that. It, it doesn't matter. You don't need to explain away all those details.
1: But then why include them? Because the kids aren't also, like, when I was a kid, um, actually, I probably did know who Bacchus was because that's the kind of kid I was. But, like, a lot of kids won't. So, like, what are they gaining from that? I don't it's know. a shorthand that doesn't work for them,
0: right, which I guess I think that just goes to show to me it shows his inexperience as a writer of of just narratives. I mean, obviously he's he's an essayist, like that's what he's great at when it comes to actual fiction. I think that's where he starts to stumble because it's not the the boundaries are not limited by like this argument that he's making and so he kind of goes wild and i i haven't have you read his uh sci-fi trilogy
1: i read the first book in that when i was in middle school this is like pearl landra or perlandia i don't remember i'm so sorry people who love these books um i read the very first book it was incredibly dry so i don't remember much of it because i was very bored I did finish it and my my dad really loves the series. I mean my dad loves like everything that Clive wrote, so you know. But yeah, I I really can't tell you anything about it other than it was very very dull. At I at I wanted to say at like 11 years old. Right, so. sure.
0: I'm I'm curious cuz I haven't read it and I honestly I have no plans of reading it. But I'm just curious like Has his storytelling improved in that?
1: Well, when did he write it?
0: Let's look this up.
1: Like, here's my vague memory. So it's about a guy going to space. I think I remember most of it just being like him exploring and his sort of internal monologue. I don't there might have been other people in it, like other creatures, alien creatures. I know there are in subsequent books, but like, I don't remember if there were any in that first book. (laughs) So I don't remember there being very much like plot I remember it being more of a, like, character story exploration book. But I could be totally wrong, because I really want to emphasize that I was very bored and very young. Like, it's the same as I uh, read uh, Fellowship of the Ring and Half of Two Towers when I was eight. And really could not tell you what was happening in those books other than, like, my eight-year-old self really hated Tom Bombadil. So...
0: I love that guy.
1: I know. I know. (laughs) So does my dad. So that's where we're at. Uh, Actually, I think Tom Bombadil is possibly the one instance of Tolkien doing the same thing that Clive does here where he's referencing something else and it doesn't add to the story. He's very much referencing like a stock character in like medieval literature And it doesn't do anything for the story. In my opinion, people argue with you that Tom Bombadil does actually have an influence on the story. And they'll argue.
0: (laughs) I've heard many arguments about Tom Bombadil's uh, real identity or or what have you. I just like him because he's a silly character.
1: But you don't like Bacchus, so shame on you. Bacchus
0: doesn't even... if ba- Okay, if we had a scene with Bacchus being a drunkard just stumbling out into the forest and talking to Lucy, that would be tops. See, that's the thing. I feel like in some way C.S. Lewis doesn't go far enough. If you're going to reference Bacchus, make him a bigger character. You know, I wanted to see him partying.
1: I think we might actually get him in Prince Caspian. Don't quote me on that, but I think he might pop up.
0: Well, any- anyway, so apparently... C.S. Lewis's uh, Space Trilogy was written in the late 30s and early 40s. So that was before the Chronicles of Narnia.
1: Okay, then he's improved, I think. Okay. At least from my memory of the first book, this is an advancement.
0: Maybe he got all that criticism about how boring those books were. (laughs) And he's like, well, I'm going to liven it up a little bit and make random references. Do you think the Chronicles of Narnia was the ready player one of its time
1: <laughs> uh...
0: the I know there there are half of the people listening to this right now who are super enthusiastic about that comparison and love it because they're wrong and like ready player one
1: no don't give to our listeners you are <laughs> We want to keep them. We can't insult them. No,
0: I'm what I'm doing here is I'm creating the villain. Everyone's going to hate me and love you. So that's the, that's the I dynamic. I feel like
1: we already got there with the pain.
0: Well, I'm just reinforcing it. The point anyway, <laughs> I'm sorry.
1: <sighs>
0: this is a All throwaway right. joke.
1: <laughs> we should try and get back. Do you have any other, I feel like we've, we've touched on sort of the big stuff.
0: Do we, did we ever finish our discussion about the sexism of the books?
1: No, I think we kind of veered off of it um i but I feel like to be fair, there's not much to say. I feel like the discussion of sexism will evolve. I think the big sexism in this book is they're considered not not okay for them to do battle things,
0: yeah, that they're like not really vital to to the events of the narrative like Lucy has some part, but it's also very passive, like she just follows the fawn and she just tags along with everyone else. And
1: no, you know what? I will, I will argue on that one. Cause I think Lucy, I mean, Lucy's obviously the one who finds the wardrobe in the first place and has that whole encounter. And she, in terms of being like a moral force and not even moral in this book, but like being the force that's like, this is what's right. I know what the truth of things is. I mean, she like essentially manages to make Mr. Tumnus, not turn her in by just being like you're not going to do that you're not that kind of person he's like you're right you're right i'm not going to
0: (laughs) that's a very good impression of uh mr tumness
1: thanks thanks so i think lucy does have some active agency uh obviously the other moment of sexism which i we didn't bring up is the division of labor at the beavers Uh, the women cook. the men fish uh, Edmund does nothing. I just want to comment that Edmund's like Peter goes out to help Mr. Beaver fish. The girls are helping Mrs. Beaver cook. Edmund does nothing and just sits there. And I was like, a move.
0: I was under the impression, actually, when I first read that, that like that's actually when Edmund snuck off. Is when everyone is doing their various jobs, and since he has nothing to do, he just walks away. But I I don't think that's actually true. In the no, way.
1: no. He, but it would like, be
0: fitting feminism would have saved everyone.
1: But it doesn't actually work because that's not what he ran off. off, Yeah, I understand. (laughs) Let me just tell
0: my jokes, Morgan. Okay, this is the only way I can survive reading these books.
1: I'm sorry, I'm sorry. (laughs) I do think some of them get better. Some of them (laughs) get worse, but some of them get better. I know a lot of people, this is their absolute favorite Chronicles of Narnia book. It has never been my favorite Chronicles of Narnia book. It's in my upper tier of Chronicles of Narnia books. Um, actually, I think it's smack dab in the middle. I think it is my fourth favorite and has always been about my fourth favorite.
0: We should have read these books in the order of your favorites.
1: Ah, uh, no, it would have made, we would have started with Portion is boy and that would have made no sense. <laughs> <laughs> Although it is a standalone. It like solidly, you need to know little to nothing. So maybe it would have made sense, but. I mean, I feel like
0: we've already established that th- these stories don't make sense to begin with so and i mean c.s lewis himself says that so okay i don't know what we're talking about anymore but let's get back on track
1: i think uh i've kind of covered most of my points i have a few like random little comments but they're not important did you have any other like big questions
0: i mean let's see yada 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 they start talking like kids at the end of the book oh my god I feel like the last chapter is like some big joke that C.S. Lewis thought was so funny and it's just it's so dumb.
1: I had forgotten that they forgot about where they came from. It's weird. How old do they get, do you think? Are they like in their fifties?
0: <laughs> I think it's said that they're they've been in there for like twenty, thirty years. So they're like in at least in their thirties. But yeah, like everything at the end with the school thing. All the kids talking like they were ripped out of a bad medieval novel. It's very strange. And I think that there's like this weird tonal inconsistency, which more or less I'm fine with. I think it's fine because, you know, you jump from like, here's like this cute, charming story of these kids going into Narnia, meeting all these fanciful creatures and participating in adventure. They spend an entire chapter eating dinner with beavers. That's fine. Great. And then you fast forward and there's this big battle and hundreds of people die. And then they talk about at the end how, like, the kid's main mission at first is hunting down their enemies and murdering them. And it's like, huh. Okay. Yep. This is is cute. So it's strange. And... I feel like it, at first it works because it's like you, you sort of learn the consequences and the stakes and, and it's a very gradual thing and I, and I actually like that. And then at the end, it seems to turn into a weird joke and he's like, I'm done writing this story. I'm going to wrap it up in five pages. I'm going to turn the heroes of the story into genocidal rulers. And I just, I just don't know what to make of it. Is it a joke, Morgan? Is this book a joke?
1: It's very interesting because I think that something that resonates in that very last section with the conversation with the professor earlier. And I think it, it kind of contradicts this. It's weird because... Obviously, they defeat the White Witch and there's that whole thing about how they spend so much time hunting down her army and exterminating them, which, which is weird. But then it ends with, um, so then there's a list of, you know, they made good laws and kept the peace and saved good trees from being unnecessarily cut down and liberated young dwarves and satyrs from being sent to school and generally stopped being busybodies and interferers and encouraged ordinary people who wanted to live and let live. And of course, this is very reminiscent of the professor who, when Peter and Susan go to him, is kind of like, well, Narnia could be real, could be not real. But like, uh, he's talking to Susan, he's like, my dear young lady, there is one plan, which one, which no one has yet suggested, and which is well worth trying. Susan's like, what's that? And he says, we might all try minding our own business. And I do think there's some idea within these books that like, yes, you should fight evil. But like, in terms of a... just, like, people that aren't evil, just, like, leave them alone. Let them do what they want to do. I think it's this weird sort of contradictory thing because, like, supposedly they're not ruling with an iron fist. Supposedly they're just, like, party on, guys. Yeah. The The, the ideas about power in this book are very confused.
0: <laughs> yes. The idea, I mean, the values are so weird because then, like, well, how do you decide who's evil and who's not? Like, how do you decide, like, how many of the witches' allies... Are like Edmund, where they were seduced by power or magic or whatever the case might be,
1: or they were like Mr. Tumnus, who was just trying to save his own hide. Like, right. I get that's bad. I firmly understand that. Like, there's a lot of discussions nowadays about like being passive or like just not acting against someone, acquiescing
0: that... in the face of evil.
1: Yes, and like, that's you know a whole thing that I, I don't particularly want to get into on this <laughs> podcast about Chronicles of Narnia. But I, I do think it's interesting. We are given two examples of people who are either like, yeah, somewhat magically seduced. Clearly, Edmund still makes the choice to some extent. And Mr. Tumnus, who is able to redeem himself by changing his mind. But like, we don't know how much uh, they are giving other people the opportunity to repent. And uh yeah,
0: It's, yeah, it's just so strange. Like, again, like coming back to this idea of the values that are being taught, I can't quite figure out what it is, but it feels like it's a, it feels like a situation where C.S. Lewis wants to have his cake and eat it too, where the good guys can intervene and save the day, but once they do, just leave him alone. And I think, I wonder if it's like what he's having in mind when he says things like that. If he's thinking about that scene with the animals having their tea party, and the witch comes along and says, what the fuck are you doing? And it's like, just let people live, you know, in that kind of situation. But you can't extend that logic all the way through this book because then Peter, Lucy, Susan, Edmund, Aslan, all of them are, like, in the wrong then. It's just, I just just don't know what it's, trying to teach kids.
1: (laughs) I assume the message is like live and let live unless like, you know, someone is harming other people. I assume that's the message, but like, that's not fully articulated by the story. So.
0: Because then how can you assume that like certain harm is bad? Because I mean, Peter motherfucking wrecked that wolf, you know, and nobody intervenes for that dude.
1: Well, but he, he, the wolf was trying to get Susan, so I think the idea is, you know, the wolf came for Susan, so Peter came for the wolf.
0: Yeah, but they Which, were going oh my for God. the witch.
1: Peter and the wolf is a reference to Peter and the wolf, right? I just got that. <laughs> this is another reference. Wait, was Peter and the wolf out? Yes, 1950. It had to exist.
0: Honestly, I don't know.
1: I'm, I'm fact-checking this right now. Yes, it was written in 1936.
0: I guess that that resolves everything. That having that reference resolves all of these questions. Now I understand. Uh. No, but like it's like I just don't And I'm not saying that like it has to be bulletproof or or anything like that. Like children's books, you know, they teach very simple morals and lessons. But usually I get what those morals and lessons are that are being taught. I I don't get them here. I don't understand them here. It's like be good, but mind your own business. But also, murder everyone who's evil, but also, leave people alone.
1: Yeah, and some people are intrinsically bad, but then some people have the capacity to be good or evil. And it depends on what kind of uh, creature you are. I, I think that's very confused. And I think um this is probably a good point to comment briefly on like just the fact that the uh, imperialistic undertones... <laughs> of like the fact that these four kids come from another world and are destined to rule over this land, and uh, that this that this is their destiny because of what they are, which is humans, and um, the fact that the other creatures are are mostly animals and stuff is um it says some things that are are maybe not the greatest. It's just uh, if you if you read that onto the real world, it starts looking really bad. (laughs) Uh, So just a side note there that that's a that's a also a comment on power that is happening. That is, I I will say I'm guessing it was unintentional and it just kind of crept in there. But it is a comment on power that some people are born to rule over other people people well other sentient beings
0: i yeah i don't know it's it's all over the place and it again i don't know i've probably said this 10 times already it just feels sloppy it's just it's hard to to figure out what exactly i'm supposed to take away other than isn't this a fun and fantastical place and that's fine there's nothing wrong with being like Look at that that uh, unicorn over there. Or look at that. There's actually a description in here. And I'm wondering if you can shed light on this. That where he describes a bull with a human's head. Ah. Is that, a, is that a thing in Greek mythology or medieval mythology? Ah. Or did he make a mistake and mean to try to describe a minotaur?
1: But I think he also has minotaurs. I think he names minotaurs. I think they're one of the creatures in the witch's thing, so...
0: I'm just... Because I'm imagining a bull with a human's head.
1: I I cannot think of that creature. can think of a, a lot of other creatures with weird heads going on. <laughs> um, but but no, I, I cannot think of an instance of that particular creature. I would love if anyone does. I remember a reference to a... Bull with a man's head and anything, I would be fascinated to read that or see that.
0: Listeners, we're giving you homework. If you know what the (laughs) this creature is, please tell us. I'm so confused by it because, I mean, I'm trying to imagine a bull with a human's head and it's the silliest thing.
1: It's very disturbing and disturbed.
0: I don't know. I just don't know. But that's the thing that I feel like really that's the image of these books. It's a bull or rather this book. Let me let me give the other books a chance. Yes. it's a bull with a human's head. And it's like, that's odd. And I don't really know what to make of it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think kind of summing up at least my re-experience with this book, I still think there's a lot of aspects of Clive's writing that that hold up. And I still like find myself charmed by a lot of things, but I can really see the ways the story is not like fully cohesive. And I can see that he I can definitely tell he didn't plan to do anything more with this world because it's not really he didn't really build a world. He built built kind of a collection of things thrown into a place tied together with, you know, I'm going to call it allegory. Sorry, Clive. You don't have to
0: apologize. He's dead
1: i you know, I just like to respect the fact that he said it was an allegory, and you know I get his suppositional thing and the typology of it i I get that I get you, clive, but um yeah, and then obviously the the I knew I was gonna see this coming in, but you know uh, the problematic elements in terms of sexism, racism, imperialism, all of those things, so yeah. I would say uh very much uh an iconic book for young children but i coming back to it i'm like there's just a lot that doesn't work about this outside of its status as kind of like yeah a building block for fantasy it feels like a building block it feels like a first draft like he could have come in and fixed those things yes
0: It feels like what he did is he took the Legos out, dumped them on the floor, and then sort of put like some weird creature together. And he's like, huh, that's it. My work's done.
1: Well, and he didn't complete putting the creature together, I think is the big thing. He got like a structure he liked and he was like, yeah. And then he didn't like finish building it. Or he like stuck other people's Lego creations on top of it.
0: Yeah. I give this book two Aslan meows out of five.
1: (laughs) Two Aslan meows. Oh, I love that. He doesn't meow. They're very particular about saying, like, he, he. uh...
0: <sighs> okay, again, again, <laughs> I'm just trying to tell a joke here, and you're killing me here.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry, I know you're you were killing trying to me tell a here. joke, but I just wanted to bring up the fact that I'm pretty sure it, just like, specifically says he doesn't, like, purr, meow. Sad. I want Aslan Yeah, hers. what
0: would Aslan an aslan purr sounds like you know a a roar can shake the world so or as we'll discuss in the next book create a world uh what does a meow do that's my question for you
1: yeah and uh i'll just wrap it up by uh i'm not gonna (laughs) give it a rating because uh i'm not sure i can i can do that i still i still really enjoyed my reread but i can tell a lot of that was nostalgia so here just a uh A few, like, weird things that we didn't mention. Um, sometimes the pronoun it is randomly used for people. That's weird. Also, uh, how does Aslan work? Uh, sometimes he seems like he works with lion mechanics. Sometimes it seems like he walks and moves around like a man. I don't know. Very confused. And also, I just want to point out the foreshadowing in, uh... The very first chapter, I think that this is meant to be, tell us what kind of people all the children are. When Peter talks about how there there might be eagles or hawks, Edmund says foxes, Susan says rabbits. And then Lucy gets excited about badgers. The honey
0: badgers are just crazy. And I
1: think that is where we are supposed to understand these characters from. There you go. That's my wrap-up for this.
0: Well, let me see if I have any any wrap-ups here. Um... Well, I do enjoy the line, Aren't you dead, then, dear Aslan? <laughs> I like that. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's um, This book really is not that good. And I guess that's it. That's not a very positive note to leave it on. I'm sorry about um,
1: that. Let's see if we can think of a, a, a positive note. I guess the positive note is... Um... That we're, like, excited. I'm excited for for next episode for Magician's Nephew, which, like, I barely remember. So I'm, I'm looking forward to not remembering really anything at all. And uh, really reading about how the Narnia world came to be through adults' eyes. And the eyes of an adult who's read a lot more fantasy and a lot more world-building and has some pretty strong opinions about those things. So I have a feeling, you know... Uh, if, if anyone listened to this and were like, you guys were way too negative. I can't handle you coming at Chronicles of Narnia like this. I have a feeling it'll be worse next week. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, maybe tune back in for Horse and His Boy, which again, I might regret saying how much I love it after I reread it. So maybe not.
0: Maybe not. Maybe just skip all the episodes. Like, yeah. Pick, maybe... pick us back up when we read something else. Yeah. Or we talk about uh, his dark materials as the response.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah, I don't. I mean, I'm I'm excited to read because I do remember that scene in The Magician's Nephew of, of the creation myth of Narnia, and I remember really disliking it as a kid, and I and I want to see if that's changed. So I'm I am excited to read it. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I apologize for if I was overly negative. But, you know, I just didn't I didn't like this book. To me, it was just so confusing and all over the place. And it's just I get that C.S. Lewis is a big deal, but I just really don't see it with this book.
1: Actually, you know what positive thing we can end on? What's that? Probably. I assume your edition has all the little pictures. Oh, yes. I still find all of those pictures so charming. And I want to give kudos to the illustrator, Pauline Baines, who really doesn't excellent job and i think she so captures just like the spirit of this world so kudos to her and also like okay especially like the image of aslan getting tied up and tormented during his well uh, i don't know what to call it other than crucifixion scene but he's not getting crucified um it's like also horrifying and disturbing and like just just so much kudos to her.
0: I do like there's one drawing of Aslan where it reminds me of Blake's drawing of the tiger where it oh, looks yeah. looks so derpy. I liked that it, that he looked a little derpy. And uh they they're fun. They they made the uh, reading go faster, so I liked them for that reason.
1: Oh my god. <laughs> you can't even be positive about the illustrations. <laughs> be positive.
0: Uh be positive. No, no, no. The illustrations are good. Okay, this is a positive. The book paints, like, it seems so well, and the visuals are so incredible. I would love to see somebody sort of interpret those images and create, like, an illustrated children's book. It's because I think that's that's the strength of this book is when C.S. Lewis is flexing his uh, poetic muscles a bit. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. Next time, magician's nephew.
0: I'm excited. We have only six more of these to get through. <laughs> ah,
1: positivity.
0: Alright, alright. Have a good one, everybody. See you later.
1: See you next time. Bye.